Hello, it's Amanda from Literary Arts, your co-host. Many of the events you hear on the Archive Project are recorded at our annual series, Portland Arts and Lectures. The 2023-24 season has just been announced and will feature Zadie Smith, Mary Beard, David Gran, Charles Yu, and Amy Nezakumatatil. To learn more about the season and how to join us at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall for five inspiring evenings in downtown Portland, visit literary-arts.org. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we reach back into the archives to the year 2000 and feature a conversation between Amy Bloom and Michael Cunningham. This event took place as part of Portland Arts and Lectures at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. It was an unusual moment in our political life when the threat of Y2K turned out to be a non-event, George W. Bush won a highly contested election, but 9-11 was still a year away. Amy Bloom had just published a collection of stories entitled A Blind Man Can See How Much I Love You, and Cunningham had published one of his most important and best-selling novels, The Hours, just two years earlier. The Hours went on to become a movie that received nine Academy Award nominations and just last year was made into an opera that was performed in Philadelphia and New York, among other cities. These two old friends are among the best fiction writers at work in this country. And at the time of this conversation, they were both at the height of their powers, making this conversation both intimate and profound. There's not an ounce of pretension or snobbery between them, but rather they express nothing but humility and respect for the difficulties of writing fiction. In fact, the opening question of the conversation challenges the very reason their work even exists when Cunningham and Bloom struggle to answer, why write? From this moment, they seem to forget there's an audience of more than 2,000 watching them as they discuss their art and what it means to them and what the art form might mean in the larger world. It's one of the best conversations I've ever heard about writing. Here's Amy Bloom and Michael Cunningham. I, I think I just have to preface by saying there's nothing the least bit peculiar about just having a regular conversation for 50 minutes in front of hundreds of people we can't see. Dressed up. <laughs> Dressed up. up. Dressed up, yeah. I'm, my big worry is how much is where I'm showing shin. Um, I hate that. It sucks luck up to here. Um, Amy Bloom. And we should, we should probably, I think, I feel before we get, we get onto the more serious subjects, we should, we should announce that um, we have just, we're, if, if there's a sort of glow about both of us, is that we just decided after, um, I'm going to have dinner afterwards with uh, several of my best friends from high school, Ann Smith and Bronson Potter, who are here, who are in the darkness. I'm, I'm thrilled about it. And then whenever we're, whenever we're through, Amy and I are going to spend the entire night watching slasher movies on video at the Heathman Hotel. <laughs> and we both got so excited. You know, we were like, yes, it's going to be a great evening. They, um, we do talk to each other. I mean, obviously, this is not the first time we've met. And, um, and we do talk to each other about a lot of different things. Although we realized at some point yesterday that we never talk about writing. Um, and we cover a lot of other topics. Um, <laughs> a lot of other topics. Right, some of them conceivably actually more interesting than writing. Um, but we found ourselves trying to put together questions that represented the things that we wanted to know about each other and, um, and the things that we often wanted to know about other people who write as well. So I will start. Because what Michael said to me, and then I immediately said, yes, that's what I'll ask you first, <laughs> so I won't have to answer it, is um, why do people write? Ha, ha, ha. Well, well I'll, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> well, it is, of course, a mystery. It's, it's um, as we all know, it offers very little in the way of, of tangible reward, even if you are the one in a million writers who's lucky enough to not only publish but actually be recognized. If you become 
the most famous living novelist in North America, you still won't be one-tenth as famous as Pamela Lee. <laughs> or make one, one one-hundredth of the money. Um, I, I think my favorite person on the subject is Flannery, Flannery O'Connor, who when asked, why do you write, said, because I'm good at it. And I, I actually have always wished that I was one of those writers who felt securely good at it. I, I, um, and maybe that person doesn't. Maybe that person is, is a romantic fiction and, and doesn't really exist. That kind of, of brash, young or middle-aged or old writer who just thinks each sentence is further is just is just is just another another brick in the edifice of his or her genius and. Um, Ongoing gift to humanity. I I, I write um, with a certain sense of 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 shame that isn't unmitigated by uh, by more pleasant emotions. But I feel slightly embarrassed about writing, um, and would be fully capable, I think, of of not showing it to anybody except I'm vain and greedy. Um, <laughs> and I, I want all the recognition I can get, but there's always something a little bit awful to me about showing work to people. God knows why I did it, but I've always wanted to do it, and, 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 then, I, and, and then there it is, and I have to begin to force myself to give it to somebody. Um, and one of the things I'm really aware of about the writing writing comma, why do we, is it has some something at least in me to do with a sort of perverse stubbornness that is probably what makes me a novelist more than, than anything else. And, and um, oh, there's so much talk about the difficulty and the horror of writing, all of which is true, but it's also a huge privilege and a great joy to write fiction. And I, 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 I am, however, very much aware of the fact that I always have a greater book in my mind than I can possibly write. Than any, I, I, I suspect than anyone could possibly write. But I'm walking around with a sort of cartoon balloon over my head, and within that balloon is, I'm not sure what to call it, the book of love, the book of rage and fire, the book so wide, deep, and profound that no one will ever need to read another novel again. Um, and there's always a moment toward the end of a novel that I'm, I'm, I'm working on when it sort of closes up and I begin to realize, oh my God, it's just this. It's just this book about these people. It doesn't include a fraction of what I feel and know and, and hoped for. And there is a terrible period of disappointment when I feel like it's not a vast creation of wind and fire. It's a tchotchke. It's an object. Um, and I, I think I probably write out of, out of a certain very valuable capacity for, for denial and, and self-delusion because even though I know better, I still honestly in some part of my being think, but the next book, but the next one, next time I'll really get it. Now I've learned and the next one will be the book. I actually believe that about my next book. I, 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 I can make a joke about it, but I actually in some way, in some kind of Little, there's some little caged creature inside her that, do, that doesn't really understand that the next book will not, in fact, be the great and singular book, the greatest book anyone's ever written. It's crazy. I think people write because they're crazy, because they're, delu they're, because they're delusional. <clears throat> and now I pass the question to you, dear. Well, I'm sure it's true that people write because they're crazy. I mean, I think that, I mean, I think that people write for the same reasons that they marry. You know, they... Uh, hmm. Well, and there you have it. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think people write so as 
not to be alone and, you know, sort of fail to recognize that they will be faced with enormous solitude greater than they had anticipated. And I think that they write to have a partner and they write to understand their own experience and they write to make it different and make it come out differently and um, to sort things out. And I think some people write because they would very much like to tell the truth about something, um, no matter what the details are. And I think some people write to make up a whole different ending to a life and a story. You know, when you said the thing about how there's that moment where you realize it's not going to be what you hoped it would be, um, I think that's one of the reasons that um, endings, actually, for writers are so incredibly hard. And that you, I mean, I often find that I read books that I think are terrific books, and the last 40 pages, I feel like the writer left the room, you know, or they forgot what their point was, or I'm still waiting to see what happens to X, and X now seems to have, like, taken the subway home. <laughs> and, um, and I think, I used to think that people's, you know, their ability just petered out before they stopped um, working on it, but I, I think it's actually more that other thing, that feeling that as you're sort of getting around the last lap, it's really not going to be what you hoped it would be. And I, I, think, I think sometimes endings are sort of this struggle between the writer's wish to do absolutely the best they can and this growing sense of despair. Um, I also think that endings are unnatural, that endings, endings in fiction involve a certain, a certain level of contrivance that beginnings and middles may not, because of course nothing does end. No story ends, it just, it just continues and branches out and these characters may die, but, but but the story goes on, and I think you have to find a place to simply cut it off, and it's easy for that to feel sort of artificial and right. half-hearted. It is right. artificial. If you want it it is artificial. On the other hand, readers, including us as readers, don't want to come to the last page and have somebody write and say things like, well, life goes on, I wonder what happens <laughs> next. You know? <laughs> you know, we do feel that the writers are obliged to say something about it. Yeah. And I also think there's a way in which endings are... I think, as a writer, where you sort of commit. You know, it's the point at which you do have to fess up to whatever delusions and fantasies you harbor about the shape of the story. And, you know, you don't want to do something sort of gross and nasty and sort of plonk some big, awkward metaphor down on the last two pages. But you do, um, you do know this is sort of your last chance to shape, you know, this animal that's been... Um, you know, wrestling with you and, I think, usually winning. Pretty, um, I, I said to Michael, that on my bulletin board at home, I have um, this quote from Samuel Beckett, whom I consider to be a somewhat unlikely source of uplift and inspiration. Um, but nevertheless, it is my favorite quote about writing. And he says, um, actually, he's speaking of, of uh, in writing and in life, he said, all we do is try, fail, try again, and fail better. And um, I think that there is something about the privilege and the difficulty of doing that over and over again um, as your vocation as well as as your life that I guess is why I think people write. Do you ever worry about whether it does any real good in the world beyond just sort of keep, keeping us employed and, 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 um, and I mean, obviously, there's, there are people, we, we need stories, we love stories, um, but, but, then, but then there's the world falling apart around us. Um. I don't think, I mean, I think other people think about it more, I think about it more now than I used to when I first started writing, partially because I had spent a lot of my life, um, you know, as a, a psychotherapist, at least ostensibly doing good, and... Um, you know, I feel like, you know, I was a good mother. I did good in that way. Um, sometimes I recycle, you know. I feel, <laughs> uh, you know, I feel that, you know, sort of overall, you know, um, I, I was sort of contributing, you know, I sort of am a member of the um, Democratic Committee in my small Republican town. I feel that, uh, that that actually was all clearer to me that those were ways of doing good. And so... Um, I didn't worry about it very much, but I am, um, I think it's also partially because I never anticipated, 
I never anticipated having any readers, so um, <laughs> I didn't actually think about what it might be like if the work was out in the world, and because um, I never saw it being there. But now, as as you get sort of out and about as a writer, I think about it more, not because I think that fiction should in any way be an essay or a polemic, but because um, there are things that, I, that, that it mattered to me to illuminate, and there are things that it matters to me that people might look at or think about or struggle with a little bit, because I think that they make a difference. Um, and it is clear to me as a reader that fiction matters. I guess it's just not as clear to me as a writer how it is that I want to think about it mattering. Yeah, I feel like if, if I didn't think it, it, fiction could change the world in some profound way, I wouldn't, why would you want to do it? Um, but I think it works very slowly, incrementally, and I get very impatient with, with artists who say, well, my, my work is my, is my political contribution. Yeah, maybe. You know, yeah, maybe oh, well, it's their political contribution, well, but you know, well, it's not like sending $500 to your favorite candidate or voting, you know, <laughs> which actually seems to me to be a political contribution. Well, and, I've, and I, I, just, I just don't imagine that, 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 that one of Bill Clinton's aides is going to walk into, his, into the Oval Office and say, Mr. President, I've just read this book by Michael Cunningham, and I've realized that our policy in the military is all wrong. <laughs> I suspect you have to do both. You have to have a you have to have a political life, and you have to have a life as an artist. And I'm not sure if you could. If um, well, I promise not to rag on and on and on about Virginia Woolf, um, though she is, of course, a hero of mine. And 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 she she struggled with this, and finally wrote novels, and she wrote polemics. Mm -hmm. She wrote Mrs. Dalloway, and she wrote A Room of One's Own, and to, and to The Lighthouse and Three Guineas. She was simply, she simply did both things. And, and, um. I, I guess that's actually part of the reason I write nonfiction, because mm -hmm. there are things that I would like to say or point out or underline for readers and people who are thinking in a way that I wouldn't like to do in fiction. In fact, in a way that I really detest in fiction. It's not that I don't think I think there are great political novels, and I think that there are great novels that change how people think, and I do think that that's possible over time. Um, but I also think that usually when people set out to write those, um, those are bad books, you know? The, the ones where the writer sits down and says, I'm gonna write a book that's gonna make people think differently about X is almost never a good idea if it's fiction. Well, because it's almost inevitably simplistic. I feel like as, as a citizen, it's my, it's my duty to, to keep George W. Bush from becoming president at all costs. But it doesn't and, make but, too but, much but of a as, story. But as a novelist, it's my duty to try to understand what it's like to be George Bush. Absolutely. And to understand how George W. Bush is the hero of his own story. And goes, goes home at night and says, hey, another day's difficult good work done. And I don't, I, I don't actually honestly see how I could reconcile the two. I feel like, yeah, as, as, a, as, a, as a citizen, you, you march, and as a novelist, you, you ponder what right. it's like to be these people. It puts us in a very funny sort of moral, amoral position. I think all good novel, all good, all the artists I respect are in some way amoral, or have access to their own amorality. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I, I think that people resolve that split differently. And, um, you know, and there are people where the political, I think, is more overt in their work and more ideological. And, and for me, I often experience that as something of an encumbrance on the story. On the other hand, um, even in fiction, I don't want things to be so utterly bland and separated from the world and static that I don't recognize um, the changes in our culture or the changes in our world or all the different things that keep happening to people, and that's not the kind of fiction I want to read. Yeah, yeah. What do you, what do you feel like you know about fiction now that you didn't know when you started writing? Oh. Huh. Um, you were supposed to ask me that question. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> yeah. 
We'll probably have words later. We'll have words. Um, but we're still watching the slasher movies. <laughs> That's right. Um, I don't know what I know about fiction in general that I didn't know when I started writing. I certainly have a better sense of what I didn't know about my own work. And I guess there are always two things that you don't know. One is all the stuff that you don't know about how to be a good writer that you keep having to learn in public, which is not so nice. Um, and the other stuff is the stuff I didn't know about my own life um, until you read it later, you know. Um, I, was, I was working on a, on a short story that's in, in, the, in this new collection, and um, there's a, a stepmother and her stepson, and I, I do, in fact, have a stepson, um, who was not very much like the stepson in the story. It, I mean, really not at all like him, but um, my son and I were, were um, really sort of struggling over something and um, kind of both sort of annoyed with each other, and I couldn't finish the story. I mean, even though this character is very little like him, um, I just couldn't go anywhere with it. And it took me another six months for us to sort of finish the stuff that we had to finish so that I could finish the story. And I don't think that um, I was aware when I started writing of how much of my life and my wishes was just going to pour out in ways that I was totally unconscious of that... Um, all the different people I've ever wanted to be and all of the different people I ever have been and all of the, you know, sexes and lives and races and sounds that I have ever experienced in any way or ever felt connected to would all be there and that I would look back at these things and see this, this very odd archaeological collection that actually had something to do with me and not just with the, with the art of writing. And I think as a writer, what I know, what I was pretty aware of then, but I know more now, is that um, it, it, is, it is true, just as they say, that um, most of the really, really cute and clever things that I write are not going to find their way into the final draft, if I'm lucky, you know, that, um, that there's always that struggle between um, you know, the wish to be, um, you know, just the wish to show off, uh, Frank, oh, wait, I mean, well, there's some, a nicer way of putting it, I'm sure, but that's really what it is, you know. When, when you, I always thought, I tell my students now, you know, I don't want to read your story and say, my goodness, you got a good liberal arts education, <laughs> you know. Um, that's not the point. It's, um, you want to see the story. For me, you want to see the story and you don't want to see the writer. And the longer I write, I think the more strongly I feel that way. I had a writing teacher at Iowa, a well, great, uh, great teacher, I'm Hilma Wallitzer, who told me to go back over my stuff. This was expressly for me. Um, and take every expression, every phrase that seemed in some way notable to me, <laughs> and give it a grade, give it either an A or a B in the margin, and then go back and, and take out all the A's. Because <laughs> those were about being some kind of Olympic skater. Those right. were about being the smartest boy in the world. Right. And they're, they're narcissistic and they don't belong in your story. Ow. But she was right. I think the other thing that I, I think there's another side to the sort of obvious show-offiness, at least there was for me. The first couple of stories I wrote, I so much, um, I, I think my great fear in life is overwriting. And I so much didn't want to overwrite, and I so much didn't want to be sentimental that I just sort of flattened all the affect out of my characters. Mm. So they were sort of walking around going things like, <clears throat> yes, it was cold. It was hard when she died. <laughs> you know? And I thought, well, you know, unless I'm writing something that takes place in Fargo, you know, um, <laughs> perhaps I want to work on this a little bit and at least allow more of the way I feel and I perceive people as feeling to come back in. So I had to kind of crack it open and let it back in because that was something that made me anxious, I think. Really interesting. I, I always have to try to go back and pull it down. My, my big fear has always been of, of, of underwriting. Because um, a, lot, a, lot a lot of what I read feels um, sort of flat and affectless right. to me. And I want to be killed by sentences. I want, to, I want, I want, 
ideally every single sentence of a, of a story right. or novel to be an ice pick right. in my heart. And in order to do that, I, I've always, I always felt like I had to risk um, going too far, writing things that are purplish and lurid, and then trying to take as many of them out as I can. But it does, it, I, I, I look back at, at my books, especially um, Home at the End of the World and Flesh and Blood, and look at some sentences and think, oh my god. Um, so it's better just not to look at, it's better not to look at your old books. But <laughs> <laughs> we're going to put together a little little book of collected wisdom. You know, writers. You know, write things to think about. Don't look at your, old, at your books. old books. Try not to read your reviews. You know, <clears throat> don't believe what they say. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I actually find that I get slightly more nervous as 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 time goes on. I, I did a, I, I did a, I was part of a presentation about Virginia Woolf at uh, a big, a, a ball theater about this size in, in New York, but it was, I was up there with people like Cynthia Ozick and um, Susan Sontag and Janet Malcolm, and like all the scariest moms in the world. Um, and it was hosted by Zoe Caldwell, the great actor, and uh, I was pacing around backstage, and she would, before it started, and she was just sitting there in a folding chair, and I sat down next to her and said, I'm just going to take a minute out for my true vocation, which is pacing and wishing I hadn't agreed to this, and come in, I would talk to you because you're a great artist and I adore you and I bow down to you. And we started talking about nervousness and, and she said, well, darling, I just get more and more nervous the more I work because I realize how badly things can go. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. I mean, it's. I, I think you know. The more you know, and the more you look at your work, and the more you see what's coming, and and I mean, it just even in your own work, and the more you wish not to repeat yourself, which is, on some level, almost impossible. I mean, we write about what we write about, and we are the people that we are, and it's like everybody else's lives. You know, who you are is inextricably woven into how you write and who you write about and how you tell these stories. And so this this task of making it fresh and making it new and going to places you hadn't imagined and yet still being the person that you are, um, I think is always hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that people ask me, so I wanted to ask you, is um, how do how do your family feel about your writing? Since you, like me, write a lot about families. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, everybody seems to feel portrayed, whether in fact they are portrayed or or not, in uh, in flesh and blood. One of one of my one of my ambitions as a novelist is to, though I didn't do it at all in in the hours, um, is to write great, hot, convincing scenes of love and sex between people who are not 23 and perfectly formed, between people who look like most of us. And um, one, of, one of the main characters in Flesh and Blood fell in love with a great man who was not a beauty, who was older and a little paunchy. And my lover Kenny has been anorexic ever since. <laughs> I could not convince him that it wasn't him because, of course, you borrow a little bit here and a little bit there, and the poor guy was. Um, my family has been great. It's 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 not easy to. I think raise a son who turns out to be a novelist, because of course you don't turn out to be a successful novelist right away. Before you get to be a successful novelist, if you're wildly fortunate enough, for many, many, many years, you are a bartender with an expensive education who claims to be writing, but you can't see any of it because you wouldn't understand. And they've, they've, been, they've been great, though it's hard on them seeing what I write. And I, 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 this comes up with my students. I, I teach a writing class at Columbia, and, and it, it comes up every class sooner or later. And, and I, I, I feel that I have to tell them any novelist who's worth anything is a murderer. 
is ruthless, and it's hard enough to write anything any good just given the inevitable constraints. If you try to write and not upset your family, you might as well give it up. And so I, 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 write, I write things that I know will be hurtful to them. What's surprising to me, what's most surprising to me in the reaction is the notion that they raised a child who was unhappy enough to write novels. <laughs> I, I know it sounds funny, but it, it's, it's true, and I sort of understand it, that, that I don't suppose I suffer from more than the usual degree of human unhappiness, but I write about it. I make it public, and, and that's very Or as my mother would say, you dwell point. on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it's, it's, they're very brave and good about it, and they love me, and it's difficult for them, and I love them, and I kill them over and over again. Don't raise your children to be novelists. They'll just spill all the family secrets. What about your family? Well, I guess it's, it's different for me because I'm, I'm both, you know, my parents' child and also a, a parent to three kids, and as my kids are older, um, what Michael said, you know, every writer is a murderer. I think what in some ways seems to me to be worse is, um, God forbid, you know, you never wish anybody dead. Uh, well, that's not true, actually, but I don't wish, <laughs> I actually do sometimes wish people, but I don't wish anybody in my immediate family dead, but there are times when I'm writing that I think, you know, if they all just either vanished or never read, that would be great, because then I would just be free to go and tell the stories um, any way I want to. And I, th I think that I am, um, I mean, I think I'm stuck with being somewhat mindful of, of these things. But the truth is that, um, you know, I, I think I'm just a more um, self-deceiving murderer. It's, it's, it's <laughs> the truth, you know, is that I think to myself, well, I, you know, I am, after all, mindful of this or that, and then, of course, only to discover that I have written it like some really incompetent burglar, you know, with clues all over the place, you know. Um, and although I did remember to do X, I, of course, you know, forgot to wear gloves. And, um, and I think that that happens a lot. I'm very aware of it. I guess the only place where I really draw the line is, is with my kids, um, in which there are times... Um, just the way they are or something they do and I would like to make use of it or something that was difficult for them and on the whole I don't because it's not worth it to me and usually I can do something else um, and with my um, uh, both my parents are alive and I have an older sister and actually with one of the first short stories I ever wrote is a story about sisters as, as some of my stories are and we're, ve we're very close, as she says, abnormally close. And um, um, in one of the stories, um, it's a sister writing about her schizophrenic, um, obese, musically gifted sister. And my tiny Armani-clad sister would sometimes come to readings just so that during the question and answer period she could leap up <laughs> and say, I'm fine. I'm really fine. Um, <laughs> and I think, um, you know, as you say, you don't really want to raise your kid to be a writer. My, my dad was a journalist, and I, um, it, is, it is to his credit, although it's a little odd, because I think people are a little baffled when he says this. I and mean, sometimes people have said, oh, Murray, you must be so pleased or so proud. And he said, I had nothing to do with it. I had no idea she was up to this, which, which was true. Um, you know, we never, we never talked about it. Um, but I think the, what I feel now, and I think he probably feels as well, is that the sight of somebody working over the typewriter every day as if it was really a job, you know, um, <clears throat> who expected to be paid for his work, um, I think was very helpful to me. And, I think that, um, you know, on the whole, I think from, both, from the older generation and the younger generation, my family likes, I mean, you know, when the kids were smaller, what, you know, what do they care what you do? 
you know, it's like what, what you do is you make lunch and you pick people up and, you know, you take their temperature and, you know, you make sure that you show up when they're doing exciting and important things in their lives and your job is to be there. And so I don't think they cared too much. And now they're, they sort of, um, they find it interesting and, of course, a great source of fun as well. And, um, and it's nice for me, I guess, in some ways, to have them now as readers. It's sort of an amazing thing. Yeah, I can't imagine. Uh, that, that just knocks me out. Uh, what are, who are some of the writers and, and, and other artists, not necessarily writers, who are most important to you? Oh, I'll do the non-writers first, actually. Yeah. Um, when I was... Um, <clears throat> I grew up in the kind of household where, um, I mean, there, there was a record player, and my parents did sometimes listen to show tunes, and that was about that. Um, that was the music in my house, and and some um, through sort of a odd circumstances, when I was um, uh, a fairly small kid in elementary school, I sort of. Um, Actually, literally. I also wasn't very coordinated. So when I say that I fell into the AME Zion Church, it's in fact true that I did actually fall into the basement of the AME Zion Church, and everybody was pretty nice about it. Uh, they were also in the middle of choir practice. And um, it changed my life. It really, it really changed my life. I had never heard gospel music, um, and... Um, uh, you know, least of all, been rescued by large, dark ladies in purple silk robes, you know, as I was lying in this little wet, damp heap on the floor, having lost my footing. And um, that stayed with me for a long time. So, um, you know, uh, lots of traditional gospel greats, you know. I, like all the other elderly curmudgeons, you know, have mixed feelings about the new wave in gospel music. But, um, all, so that music, I mean, I, um, I'm sure that my children were the only children in the Hebrew school carpool who um, sang Amazing Grace. Um, <laughs> but that has, that's a big part. I mean, all kind of rhythm and blues. I mean, you know, Dinah Washington and Sarah Vaughan and Aretha Franklin and um, Solomon Burke and Otis Redding. So there's sort of that whole big pile of music and um, I think I, I think I like paintings a lot. I like to look at certain kinds of art very much, but I don't feel them the way I feel music, I don't think. And, um, and for writers, you know, there's, there's the people you read when you're younger and they just stay with you because they shape um, what reading is like for you. Um, the, the two books are, the th well, A Tale of Two Cities and Little Women and The Scarlet Pimpernel, with whom I identify deeply, um, however unlikely that seems. Um, and it was also my first experience reading that, it was my first experience with having to airbrush reality which was a thought that stayed with me when I got older, which is um, The Scarlet Pimpernel, for those of you who haven't read it recently, um, uh, is written by the Baroness, whatever her last name is, which I can't pronounce, um, and couldn't then either, um, who's virulently anti-Semitic. I mean, her anti-Semitism is the mildest of her prejudices. Um, and... Um, you know, the, the, the peasants are greasy and filthy, you know, the, the, the Jews are unspeakable, um, you know, the women are given to a lot of heaving and sighing, and basically, aristocratic white men are pretty much the only good people around. And nevertheless, I loved this book, and I wanted to be in it. And um, I did find myself thinking about how I would be disguised as the Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, <laughs> you know, both wardrobe problems and, um, and some other difficulties. Um, I had pink Harlequin glasses when I was a little girl. And I did think that might give me away. Um, and then um, I read Polly Adler's A House is Not a Home, which is a memoir of a New York madam. It's on the top of my dad's bookshelf. And, um, and she had... Um, 
she had actually a great gift for narrative tension, I felt. And um, there were these very cozy domestic scenes of the girls kind of lounging around in their peignoirs. Um, and then there'd be like a mahjong game, and then the gentleman callers would come, and then they'd go back to, you know, playing cards and talking. And um, there was something sort of very cozy and also disturbing about the book, and I suppose that combination of what is familiar and what is utterly foreign and yet made familiar uh, probably stayed with me for a long time. I have read other books since then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess those are from back then, the ones that shaped me, I think. I would love to know from, from more writers what, like what junk really formed them and, and what, what, what things other than books. And, and music is big, huge to me. Um, Verdi and Al Green and Laura Nero. And I mean, I listen to different music for different, different things I'm, I'm working on. Um, and Joseph Cornell and Robert Ryman. I, uh, I find I have a studio that's separate from my apartment, and I, every time I start a new book, I sort of redo the studio, which, which, in addition to sort of assuaging my powerful desire to be a decorator and not a novelist, um, <clears throat> sort of sets the scene. And I, I'm about to start a new book, and I have, I've just kind of, without particular calculation, been accumulating things. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really nice, very odd, old etching of, of, like a, of a turn um, and a little piece of a fallen cornice, a little, a little sort of flower somebody carved 200 years ago that, that fell to the sidewalk of New York, and um, a, little, a feathered headdress that somebody sent me from, from, from Brazil, some, some a bad painting of, of a mountain, and of course I can never possibly, never answer the question, what is your next book about? But I could sort of point to the wall with these things on it and say, well, it's about this. <laughs> and now I just have to write it. What about the junk you read? Well, I, I, I don't think of it as junk, but it's, it's actually not, I don't know what to call it, A Wrinkle in Time was the book that just thrilled me when I was a kid. The opening line of Wrinkle in Time actually is, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> that is a true fact. I, am prob I probably shouldn't admit how much influence Jekyll and Suzanne had on me. I loved Valley of the Dolls, and it is atrociously written, but it also has a kind of vitality that I don't, I don't disavow to this day. Um, and I, I didn't really reform until I was about 15, um, a very short version. I, I, I was smoking a cigarette at, at, at our high school, trying to look as dangerous as it was possible to look while smoking one of your mother's Kents. And there was this older girl, senior, a fabulous a goddess with long dark hair and long fingernails and fringe and dressed in the skins of the animals she had slain. And, uh, <clears throat> and I was desperate to impress her, or at least to be the kind of person who could impress somebody like this. And I, I, I sort of took a nervous little drag on my cigarette. Took a giant hit of her Marlboro, which was a much cooler cigarette than the cigarette I had. And blue, and you know, blew out a vast swirling cloud of, of blue-white smoke and, and, and said, yes, they're both very good. How do you feel about T.S. Eliot and Virginia Woolf? Well, I mean, I knew who they were. I didn't think I'd ever have to actually read them. And, and I, they didn't have any Eliot at the library, but they did have one copy of Mrs. Dalloway. And I took it out. and tried to read it. I mean, I was a stupid 15, a not especially precocious 15-year-old, and I had no idea what it was about. But the depth and the density of those sentences, the music of them, it did speak to me. I, I did sort of get it in, in, in some way. And it did turn on some little light inside my stupid little head. And it, it, it made me think that everybody who's serious about reading, I mean, anybody who would, would come tonight has a first book, 
probably not the literal first book you ever read, but the first book that connected for you, that cracked it open and showed you what literature can be. And that was Wolf for me. You know, that, that may actually be the other reason that people write, which is that there is something about that moment, whatever that first book is. I mean, when I was a teenager, for me, it was Dylan Thomas's poetry, which seemed to me like these extraordinary short stories on a page with that same density and that same power of the image. And it may be that, you know, partially we write because there is this way in which you want to crack it open again this time as a writer, and um, not just as a reader. Yeah, yeah. It's probably that time. I think it is that time. I just, I just, I just, I, I just, but it's, there's one more thing that's just on the tip of my tongue, which was I, just before this, I, I well, I, I say sad, and I should more truthfully say I snuck in to um, this great lecture given, given by Christopher Zinn um, about us. And and I was had, napping. And, and <laughs> the, the very the very kind of odd experience of, of of listening to someone who didn't know I was there talking about my book. And I'm glad he he, he was very nice about it. Though he, though he did open by saying that that he enjoys reading you more than he does me. Well, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's nice. It's going to make for a great evening. Yeah. And there was a sense of being at one's own funeral a little bit. <laughs> um, but I think what was most interesting and sort of revealing to me was the discrepancy between my sense of this book, of any book I've written, certainly, certainly this one, as sort of standing in a ne whirling nexus of, of my second thoughts about it, my uncertainties about it, all the choices I might have made and didn't make, the chapters I threw out, and um, this very authoritative commentary on it. Some of which, and, though it, and I, I clearly, right or wrong doesn't matter really, but um, it doesn't apply, but I did find myself listening to some of it thinking, really? <laughs> and there's just there's I I I I've just realized how deeply odd it what a deeply odd discrepancy there is between this slightly arbitrary thing you created over a course of weeks and months and years with all kinds of guesses and intuitions and uncertainties in it and this Thing, this finished thing that, that, that everybody else perceives as your book. Yeah, I always was surprised, actually, the first time I saw, you know, a book book. I think I really felt in my, in my heart that I was going to wind up with something that looked like an old camp newsletter, you know, like on the purple Mimeo. And, and so when I saw it between hard covers, I, I was amazed that it didn't have little specks of blood and little drops of sweat and little tattered fringes of something that might be skin. You know, I just couldn't believe that it looked just like a thing, a, a, a thing that you buy. It, that was astonishing. Yeah, yeah, me. yeah. In that way, bookstores seem so haunted to me because I just look at all those books and like everybody finished these books. And I know what people went through to write them, and here they are. Good, bad, or indifferent, here they are. So here, are. so here we are. And <laughs> so here we are. Okay, okay. I think there is a system whereby... Right, there's a mechanism for you, questions, yeah, yes, right? Yes, yes. Sure. I'm a lawyer, and I st when I start writing, um, because I have a point my client wants me to make, but once I get the point, I can't stop writing about it. Um, <laughs> oh, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Speak to us after the show. That's right. Um, but sometimes, when I'm trying to write fiction, I can't really get to the point. Um, and how do you do that when you write fiction? Wow. That's a that's a that's a good and and large question. Um, 
I guess I feel like I'm writing to try to understand what the point really is. I guess my big hope is to ultimately, through long trial and error, produce a book that I'm not quite smart enough to have written. My students are mostly writing novels because that's what people are mostly writing any, anymore. Um, there's, there's, there's at least fewer of my students are, are, are writing stories. And I find that I talk to a lot of them about this point they reach at which the novel just falls apart. They look at it after 50 pages or 100 pages or 500 pages and think, well, this was just a stupid idea and I don't care about it. I don't know where it's going from here. And I think I may have to just dump it. And I always tell them, just from my own experience, well, that may be true. It may, it, not every, one of the reasons you write a book is to start, set up, start to write a book is to see whether there's really a book there. Or what also may be happening is that the book is shedding its point, mm -hmm. is shedding the little idea you had about it, because we're not smart enough to write novels or short stories, not out of the little squirrel cages of our brain. They have to come through us from, I don't know where they come from. But what may in fact be happening when you lose track of the point and when your, your work starts to fall apart is that it's, it's shedding its little skin and turning into something deeper and stranger than you ever imagined. Yeah, I mean, I think the work falling apart is almost always one of those things where it's either very good news or very bad news. And, um, you don't know what the point is until you've finished whatever you're writing, and often not even then. And um, for me, the way I tend to focus on what I'm writing is through the characters. I feel that if I pay enough attention and make them real and alive, they will tend to lead me to whatever the point of the story is. I mean, sometimes you just start from an image or a conversation or a memory or a moment, and um, that's not really the point, although undoubtedly the point is somewhere contained in there. And you just sort of keep, um, I guess you, you sort of keep holding it up to the light in different ways and writing different sentences until something emerges with a little more clarity. Yeah, until you find out what the point really yeah. is, if there's a point at all. All right. Good night. Good night, everybody. That was Amy Bloom in conversation with Michael Cunningham from a Portland Arts and Lectures event in the year 2000. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock, and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to the Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>